Hello and welcome to Life As It Is. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. We often hear meditation described in terms of mindfulness, but Buddhist teacher and writer Martin Aylward playfully offers bodyfulness as an alternative. In his latest book, Awake Where You Are, The Art of Embodied Awareness, Aylward invites readers into their own embodied experience, offering what he calls a guidebook for an embodied life. In today's episode of Life As It Is, my co-host Sharon Salzberg and I sit down with Aylward to discuss the power of embodied attention, how the pandemic has changed our relationship with our bodies, and how we can work with physical pain and discomfort in our practice. I'm here with Buddhist teacher and writer Martin Elward and my co-host Sharon Salzberg. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Martin. Hey. Hi. It's great to be with you both. So we're here to talk about your new book, Martin, Awake Where You Are, The Art of Embodied Awareness. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about the book and what inspired you to write it? Sure. I guess the initial inspiration was this line of Buddha's, you know, the whole universe arises and passes right here in this body. And the way that's borne out by meditative experience, the the meeting with life, the sensory life, psychological life, emotional life, the life that's within and around us, etc. And increasingly feeling meditation as intimately involved with relaxation in a way. I'm familiar, as maybe you are, with hearing meditation teachers sometimes say, oh, meditation is about a lot more than relaxation. And then I started to think, really? (laughs) And whereas I probably the early years of my practice had been more mindy, you know, mindfulness and mind training and thinking of meditation as some kind of mental discipline or mental training, the fact that all the complexities of mind that we get into are reflected in tension patterns and energetic holding and posturing that we do physically, and that actually, so much of what we do meet emotionally and psychologically and so much of our complexities can actually be really well met and engaged with and resolved actually through noticing the tension patterns and relaxing, relaxing. And of course, that's a relaxation that isn't just muscular, it goes beyond that, energetic relaxation and what we could call an emotional relaxation or even an existential relaxation. And so that sense of really embodied awareness, an embodied ground to meditation, felt to me like I could find a whole way through a path of practice and looking at psychological and emotional stuff and relational issues and how we are in the world, but keeping this thread of really sensing and finding our way through the material of our lives in a very embodied way. Right. You've already mentioned embodied a few times, and you describe the book as, quote, a guidebook for an embodied life. You invite readers to sit down into their own embodied presence. So that really seems to be an emphasis in the book. Yeah, and I try to keep inviting people back to that throughout the chapters. And in the spirit of that, I guess I would invite the same thing of anybody listening right now. So we might find ourselves engaged in the content and what's being said, but it's interesting as you listen to, oh, how are you listening? Are there some unnecessary and 
unhelpful tension patterns that are alive right now? You know, is your forehead slightly tense or is your jaw a little tight or are your shoulders or your belly being held in a certain way? And if you notice that and just invite that to soften, it's a very simple and yet very immediate way in which we notice, oh, there can be a little more ease, a little more space, a little more openness, a little more receptivity. And so as we go on talking together, that would be the invitation for people to keep checking in in that way, keep sensing. In other words, to keep supporting a very embodied kind of presence. I'm trying to feel, speaking of embodiment, I'm trying to feel the relationship between relaxation and an offering you make as an alternative to the language we usually hear about mindfulness, which is watching something or observing something. And going back to the original text, the Satipatthana Sutta, you're saying to enter into. So now I'm very intrigued. Like, what is the relationship between entering into? First of all, what does it mean? And what's the relationship between that and relaxation? Yeah, so that entering into, you know, the refrain in the Satipatthana where the Buddha keeps on saying, using the phrase of from the inside, you know, knowing the breathing from inside the breathing, Mm -hmm. knowing the sensations from inside the sensations. And so I found that using that kind of language of inhabiting experience, being intimate with experience, entering into experience, rather than the language of observing or watching, it just helps that process. And, you know, I don't want to make a big deal out of relaxation in a way Mm -hmm. that suggests one should be relaxed in some way. Mm-hmm. But actually, you don't need to relax. <laughs> the entering into might show you where there's some tensions. And if you really recognize and sense into tension, you find out that it wants to relax, actually. <laughs> we don't want to be tense. And yet, often we're used to a degree of tension that we don't even recognize as tension. We just recognize mm-hmm. it as me, of how I am. You know, I hold myself in a certain way. You can track that by virtue of the fact that if you tense intentionally right now, anybody listening, you feel more solid, feel more dense, you feel more me. You know, there's a more solid sense of self. The boundaries between me and the world seem more solid and real. And then by contrast, oh, if you just let that soften a little bit, oh, just very immediately, obviously, the sense of boundary softens. Our sense of self is very much related to tension. And you can track a tighter or looser, a narrower or more receptive sense of self and sense of the locus of experience just through that, through tension and relaxation and the kind of infinitely deepening trajectory of that as it becomes more subtle, as you become more interested in it, as you become more in love with just hanging out and being at home in your body. You reminded me actually of something that I've taught, which is, you know, so much of the language implies something other than what I think is actually the truth, which is that we're already kind of leaning forward, leaning forward, trying to control or hold on or cling or something like that. And so if we say something like settle back, it's to a place of kind of natural balance and peace. And, you know, it's not hurling something away in dislike or trying to avoid it, but it's undoing the thing that we tend to do. And we tend to do it because we don't realize how much it hurts. Right. And if we can just feel that, as you say, and, and kind of settle back into a greater state of balance, that's also a place where 
so much of what we want, like love, as you say, and insight, wisdom will arise anyway. So I also want to say that you're so inventive and creative in your use of language. The term sati, which is usually translated from the Pali as mindfulness, you're proposing that we think of sati as bodyfulness. So what does bodyfulness look like in action? Well, I'd back up a little bit. I like to translate sati as presence, right? Okay. But Buddha's very clear about what kind of attention constitutes presence. And it's yoni so manisikara, right? Which usually gets translated as embodied attention. But if you want to go to the etymology, it means, I call it a wumi attention, right? <laughs> yoni is often translated as a vagina, especially in the yogic practices. But it seems mm-hmm. to be actually a more generic term for all the female reproductive stuff down there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. in this context, wumi attention, I find that really beautiful. One, because the sense of the womb as the deepest place in us, the sense of the, the womb being the source of life and the womb in terms of you know, pregnancy with possibility. The fact that when you really relax into your belly, your belly feels big. It feels round and full. Some of the population here, including myself, might be thinking, well, hold on, I haven't got a womb, right? Uh-huh. But it's interesting. We have no trouble thinking of the heart in two different ways, right? We think of the heart, the organ, the blood pump, and then we talk about the heart as the center of emotional life. Love doesn't actually live in your chest, right? Mm-hmm. But we recognize that when we talk about love and we refer to the heart, that somehow energetically and experientially, this is the center of where we experience love. And in the same way, you know, we talk about the head in different ways. There's the head, this sort of lump on top of the shoulders. And then there's the head center. And we think of cognitive life as being kind of centered there. And then the belly, or the womb in this sense, is like that. It's the center of embodied intelligence. It's the center of presence. And that term, yoni so manisikara, seems to me the Buddha's way of pointing out the primacy of a relaxed attention being at home down in your belly. And likewise, all those old Chinese fat monks that you see, you know. Interestingly enough, if you're happy looking, big smiling, big bellied mm-hmm. Buddhas. To me, that those big belly, it's like a representation of a filled out, wombie presence. You actually use the phrase as well, embellied attention, which is kind of like amazing. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. And of course, a lot of us culturally, we feel either the inner or the outer pressure to suck in our bellies in some uh-huh. way. And so in meditation, it doesn't work, right? It's painful to hold your belly in. And yet often we notice that that's a conditioned, that's just the way we are. And oh, to let your belly soften and relax. And I know people that have, I, I know myself when that started to happen, I'd have to open my eyes sometimes and look down and check because I felt like I had this great distended um, Mm -hmm. stomach, you know. But it actually was just an energetic felt sense of expansion. Actually, I love this word prosperity. We usually think of it in financial terms, but Mm -hmm. to me it has that feeling of a kind of a satisfaction in the belly, an ease in the belly. My dad, after a good meal, would sometimes lean back in his chair and he'd pat his stomach and he'd say, ah, 
all bought and paid for. (laughs) (laughs) And somehow that sense of a kind of, ah, a kind of gladness. It's like, oh, it's very, it's very beautiful to have a happy belly, you know, and a happy belly is a round one energetically. It's got that quality of of fullness or or even prosperity to it. It's so much fun listening to you, really. (laughs) Even using uh, presence instead of mindfulness is sort of an interesting choice. And you first learned embodied presence by example from your teachers, including a Himalayan hermit known as Babaji, which, you know, of course, that brings India back to me and that life and that time in my life. And can you tell us what you learned from spending time with Babaji? Sometimes I hesitate a little bit because I'm often teaching in a context where people are not going off to Asia or to hang out Mm -hmm. in the Himalayas or in some uh, obscure monastery. I think the danger sometimes with talking about these exotic Eastern adventures, like, you know, you also lived, Mm -hmm. it can make it sound like that's where the enlightenment is. You know, it's over there in those monasteries and, and hermitages. But it was incredibly formative for me. I was just 19 years old and wandering around sort of falling in love with meditation, but in a very, <laughs> in a very unintegrated way. I mm-hmm. hadn't at all learned how to be an, a human yet, let alone mm-hmm. an adult human. You know, I didn't really want to be a human. I wanted to be some kind of, you know, spiritual um, something else. And mm-hmm. after sitting my first 10-day meditation course, I, in this rather grandiose adolescent way, decided, right, I'm off to the cave. That's what yogis do. And I walked out of Dharamsala, where the course had been, and walked up. I was 19 years old. I was terrified because I didn't have any blankets. I didn't have anything to eat. But Mm -hmm. I somehow thought, well, that's the whole point. You've got to go to the cave without all that stuff. So I headed off, and I went out of the town and up into the forest and the hills. And to my good fortune, I met this old Baba, Sadhu, who I'd met in Rajasthan previously, about a thousand miles away. And he said, oh, where are you going? And I said, oh, I'm off to the cave to meditate. He sort of rolled his eyes at me <laughs> and said, look, why don't you, you know, if you go across that valley and the river up that path, he said, you'll find this one Baba living there. He has a little place. Maybe you can stay with him. And so, of course, that was greatly relieving to me. I went there and in classic tradition, he sort of said, you know, you can sleep there for three nights. And I stayed for most of the next three years. And it was very informal. He never really tried to teach me anything, but I learned a lot. He, he always said, oh, you've, you've done this meditation course. You've got to practice. Just do that. And in between, I was coming and going to Thailand and monasteries there with Ajahn Buddha Dasa and, and elsewhere. But talking about presence, you know, rather mm-hmm. than mindfulness. Mindfulness can sound like a technique in some way. Mm-hmm. But I sort of, in some ways, feel like I learned about presence by osmosis from him, by the way he made tea and the way he moved a piece of firewood around from one place to another, the way he undid the lid of a jar, the way we washed pots together. It was like everything was worthy of attention. Everything was worthy of care. And that was just in my scattered adolescent mind with all my kind of overly complicated ideas about meditation. It was incredibly... (laughs) relieving and and heartening and yeah and educational i guess to have that sense of bringing my practice into the way i unscrewed the tea lid and on the one hand to be made i felt very very clumsy and awkward next to babaji but i also felt like he was relentlessly 
kind and forgiving and generous spirited to me. Mm. And that was very invitational to me to just become attentive in a quiet way. There's an anecdote I tell in the book about painting the windows, you know, and I got all enthusiastic about painting the windows. And after the first day, he said to me, look, stop. He said, you know, your problem is you're trying to paint the windows. (laughs) And just stop. Just take care of the brush stroke. And Mm. his phrase was, and let God paint the windows. You know, it's not your responsibility. You just, you just take care. And I started to notice, oh, the smell of, and the way the light caught the paint. And just to really give myself to that process. And sure enough, incredibly to me, at the end of four or five days of sanding and painting, to stand back and see all these red shutters on the windows of the ashram. And it did feel like that to me. It was like, oh, I took care of the brush strokes and God has painted the windows. Wow. Uh, infinite ways to apply that basic principle of karma yoga, right? That you don't worry about the fruits of your actions, just take care of the quality of care and attention with which you engage in your actions. And uh, he was incredibly kind and helpful to me in that way. And what a beautiful approach to that particular teaching, because it could come from lots of different angles, you know, including a a pretty spare or terse, like, pay attention, whatever you're doing, (laughs) you know. But this was so lovely as a a message, almost like a blessing. Just do this. Yeah. And even though the language is one of attention, and I'm sure that you found this with your own teachers as well, the quality of being with somebody in that practice and being Mm -hmm. accompanied by that practice, it's not attention in a dry sense. It's just as much. You could equally describe the whole process as love. Mm -hmm. You could say, I'm giving attention to my breath or I'm giving attention to painting the windows. But it's equally, I'm learning how to love this in breath. I mean, learning how to love this brush stroke, the spareness uh, drops away. I'm going to try to say embellied attention, but I don't know if I can very easily. <laughs> it's going to take a little while because you're right. It is love. And it's so much connection with what's going on. Now, I'm also just curious, before I give the floor to James, about, you know, if we can feel kind of the power of somebody's more full on embellied attention and just the integration of their being now thinking about how does such a being experience us you know and is is that the birth of compassion because even as incomplete as any of us may be we may be with people who are in tremendous psychic pain for example or some of the most poignant thing is where you see somebody's beauty so clearly and they do not see it mm. And so you get this tremendous sense of division within them and disconnection. And I'm just wondering about the relationship of those two things. When any one of us exhibits a more full-on embellied attention, doesn't that help the other person mirror it in some way? My sense is it can go either way, actually. Mm -hmm. It can serve if you're with somebody who's basically at home in themselves, at ease in their skin. Bien dans les baskets, we say in French, like it means they're good in their sneakers. Oh, that's good. <laughs> if somebody's really at ease, that can be really invitational to somebody else. It's like in their companion's ease, they can find reflected to them their own tension and the invitation to drop it. Mm-hmm. And I also think it can go the other way where people can be intimidated, right? Mm-hmm. It can be very uncomfortable to be around someone who's free and open and relaxed and loving because 
it somehow reflects back to me, oh my God, all the ways I'm not. And I, I, I don't know that that's what it's doing necessarily, but it's like the light of the other is too dazzling. And I remember going to visit some old sadhu in Nepal once who my teacher sent me to. He was like this 95-year-old guy with dreadlocks down to the floor and three meters off behind him. I turned up at his gate and he said to me, you know, Beto Jiao, you sit down there and sit on your position, was the way he put it. And I sat down there feeling intimidated. And I just had the sense that whatever was going on in my mind, this guy could see it all. Mm -hmm. He just knew everything that was happening. And I started off like, oh my God, the more I was alarmed by the fact that he knew my mind, the worst kind of stuff seemed to come up in my mind. Mm -hmm. And so that sense of, you know, intimidated, freaked out by the fact that I was being seen, basically. And then, you know, an hour or two passed and he's just humming around and making tea in the background and, <laughs> and, you know, just going on with his life. But I nevertheless felt like I was stark naked there, psychically naked. And then it's like, oh, hey, if he really can see or feel or somehow know what's going on with me and I'm still here and he's still making tea in the background, maybe it's okay. Maybe I don't need to take myself so personally, so seriously. Nice. Ah, And so that, for me in that moment, it switched from being intimidated by somebody else's invitation to actually letting it work on me in some way. Mm. It's wonderful. You know, Martin, you've talked a little bit about the ease of embodiment, but in the book you also write about the difficult parts of embodiment, including physical pain and discomfort that can come with meditation, sore legs, stiff back, achy knees, the whole bit. How can we work with the physical discomfort in our meditation practice? Because embodiment, there's a reason sometimes we want to run the other way. The amazing thing about meditation is it's a kind of controlled dukkha environment, right? It's controlled pain environment. So many situations in life, you can't turn off the pain. And yet in meditation, it's like, you can always move your legs. You can always stretch your shoulders out. You can stand up. You can just stop and go and have a cup of tea. Just holding it in that way is really helpful because we can get rather, I certainly used to get very tight around the pain of meditation, thinking I should be able to sit through it or I should be able to sit in a certain posture or for a certain time. And it seems to me that, of course, it is really helpful to sit with and to lean into discomfort. You get to study your reactivity and your neuroses and all the kind of catastrophe fantasy that we do. And and yet it seems to me it's helpful as long as you can cultivate spaciousness and relaxation and not taking your reactivity so seriously and actually able to sense into the discomfort and leave it alone a little bit, maybe even love it. You know, you can love it even if you don't like it then it's helpful. And at some point, you can't do that anymore, right? At some point, it's just too much. I'm tired, I'm tight, I'm fed up. And then it's just as much a part of your practice in that moment to actually, uh, to intentionally give yourself a break. One of the things I discovered early on is that having a certain amount of curiosity about the discomfort was tremendously helpful. I remember very clearly early on at IMS with Sharon and Joseph sitting in retreat, And I had this pain in my back, this pain in my back. And when I became interested in it, it became an anchor, in a way, of attention. And when it left, I was disappointed. (laughs) So the irony of that. But curiosity is tremendously helpful there, I found. 
Yeah, well, intensity holds our attention, right? If something's intensely pleasurable or intensely unpleasant, it draws the attention. It helps in that way to hold your attention. Then when it goes, oh, nothing intense, attention goes bouncing around again. And then right. you, so you find you might miss it in that sense. But again, because it's a controlled environment, if people live with chronic pain or ongoing intense pain or pain that you can't switch off, and in some ways, I think the fact that it's a controlled environment in meditation, it's an amazing opportunity to train your capacity to be curious about discomfort, to be tolerant of discomfort, to be tender towards discomfort. For those times then when suddenly you don't have any option and that you can't turn it off. And that sense of really using meditation to practice while you can control the environment because you really, what a blessing that is when you can't control the environment and when you have pain that won't go away. We'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. Family life can be chaotic, but mindfulness can help. It doesn't necessarily have to be a formal daily meditation practice. There are simple, fun techniques that you can use with your kids in the moment to work through difficult emotions and find greater ease and calm. Sign up now for Tricycle's new online course, Mindfulness for Kids and Parents, to learn meditation and yoga techniques that you can practice with your kids or on your own. Led by Atman Smith, Andres Gonzalez, and Ollie Smith of the Holistic Life Foundation, this course offers a practical path to integrating mindfulness into everyday family life. If you're a Tricycle subscriber, you can get up to 35% off all online courses. Enroll today at learn.tricycle.org. And now let's get back to the conversation with Martin Elward. You know, there's something I wanted to add here that I hadn't planned on asking, but it's about coming back when we're momentarily lost. And for decades, Sharon has taught it's in the coming back Mm -hmm. uh, that we strengthen that attention muscle. And yet at the same time, sometimes the effort, as Sharon has spoken about often, is sort of tense. We sort of drag ourselves Mm -hmm. back to embodiment, yet we're already there. I wonder if you both could comment on that, because it is easy to become discouraged because you can become in certain sittings lost again and again and again. And it really helped me to take Sharon's advice to heart that it's in the coming back that we progress, if you can call it that. And yet with embodiment, in fact, we're embodied all the time. There's another way to come back, and that's to simply remember. I wonder if you could both say something about that. You know, it's interesting, and like you say, the effortful way of coming back, because that's how it feels at first. It's like uh, my default mode is just lost in thought, you know, caught up in my endless uh, details and dramas. And then I remember, and it seems like I have to drag my attention back to this thing called the present moment and try and hold it here. And as soon as there's a moment of inattention, boom, I'm gone again. But embodied presence starts to show us that actually all those departures are themselves effortful. If you're caught up in some thought stream, there are inevitably that mental effort, that mental activity has correlates. Your brow is tight or your shoulders are up or your jaw is clenched or you're leaning in some way. And then you realize, oh, you don't have to drag your attention back. When you see that you've been gone somewhere and you notice the inherent tensions, oh, just soften. You just let them soften. Let them soften. Then we find that actually being present is natural, easeful, restful, basically. That's a really important fulcrum change in practice. So from feeling like 
being lost is the path of least resistance and that I have to put forth effort to be present, we realize that actually it's the opposite. It's all those departures just take energy and I just have to let that soften or dissolve. And then we start to realize, oh, I can actually be more or less constantly present. And that rather than there being glimpses of presence amidst a sea of mental activity, it's actually the other way around. More or less constantly present, more or less constantly landed in a basic feeling of ease, but of course the taste of freeness running through our experience. And then, oh, sometimes some little thing gets hold of my attention and starts to create some drama and I start to ride off on that horse and then I increasingly quickly becomes obvious, oh no, what's happening? Why would I do that? And then, oh, letting the edifice just crumble again. It was that part of the book that made me ask that question and also Sharon's teaching. So Sharon? I think here's where I appreciate a lot the offering of context, however we come to it, you know, because we all tend to, I think, bring our own expectations and our self-criticism and whatever, all these habits of mind right into our practice where they can live, you know, and, and flourish. And that's sort of not the point at all. And so having some understanding it, Here, I also look at language a lot because I hear people ask and say things like, I want to maintain mindfulness throughout the day without a break. And I usually say, I don't think that's going to happen, you know, (laughs) and it's exactly like Martin described. I mean, it has a lot of things about it's okay, actually, because you can begin again more and more quickly. You will see that you don't feel so comfortable in intense reactivity or imbalance. And there's something in you that will want to come back. And that happens sooner and sooner. And that's a different quality of life when that happens. And so rather than despair and think, oh, no, I got caught up again. And it was the same stupid thing that caught me up, you know, saying, look at that. This is really different. And so I find we all need to be reminded again and again that this is the point and not that sort of beatific, unbroken state (laughs) that we somehow imagined was going to be ours after a lot of work. And so I, I want to move on actually and talk a little bit about our time because it is such an unusual time with a pandemic and that has upended, you know, so many of our usual physical routines, both on a practical level, you know, we may wear masks or on a psychological level before we go a certain place, we sort of weigh the risks of being in that space and pay attention to our bodies differently. Like, I have asthma and I have for many years and I've had for many years a chronic cough from asthma. And so now, of course, every cough I look at, hmm, you know, what is that? Or certainly other people hear me cough and they're like, oh, you know, that's an interesting thing too. So (laughs) uh, this whole sense of embodiment, our own embodiment, the physicality of it, I think has really been challenged in so many ways. And I'm wondering about your thoughts about that. Yeah, in so many ways. I noticed it last week. It was my my wife's birthday and her birthday is on Halloween. So Halloween's a big thing in our house because it's Uh her birthday too. And for the first time in a few years, we had a big party and everyone dressed up and came over and it was great. And in France, where I live, we have very well-established protocols of greeting each other, right? Or we did have until two mm-hmm. years ago. You know, mm-hmm. you shake hands, you kiss on the cheeks. It's like we don't do that awkward thing that we used to do when I lived in the UK, where you don't know whether to 
hug, kiss, shake hands, do nothing, punch your shoulders. <laughs> so you sort of do some awkward mix of some or other of those. And the French, we have these kind of fluid social protocols, except they've all gone in the last couple of years. Mm. And now it's like, oh, we don't know how to greet each other anymore. Mm -hmm. In one way, there's a loss to that, right? There's a loss of the familiar, comfortable social forms where we have these beautiful ways actually of saying, oh yeah, here I am and I see you and, uh, you know, which is really what you're doing, right? With a a greeting somebody, you're letting them know I'm here and I'm okay and I'm glad that you're here. And on the other hand, suddenly there's something fresh about it because you can't just go through the motions of a kiss on the cheek and then we're done. And mm-hmm. so there's a sort of invitation to actually stop and look in the person's eyes and actually say, oh, hey, <laughs> how are you doing? Or, hey, I, I am here. And I found myself, it was very touching actually, just in that party, actually making a different quality of contact with someone in the moment just because the familiar protocols aren't available. And then there's also just, we managed to maintain residential retreats pretty much all through the pandemic. The first shut down for three months in 2020 and the spring happened. But then we had people coming all of last summer and everybody was masked. And we had a few times where people became symptomatic and tested positive in the middle of a retreat. But we never had any transmission within a retreat because we were basically taking care and people were masked at all times. And that was very interesting as well to sit in a room full of meditators and, you know, you only get to see people's eyes. Mm. And we just had a couple of weeks ago our first unmasked retreat. And so we had test on arrival. People tested again on day two or three, I think it was. Mm-hmm. But it was like, oh, just to sit in the room with all these kind of glowing Buddha faces mm-hmm. and be able to see all of them. And yet, you know, we're very far, really, from being out the other side. In fact, there was an article in the Atlantic today about, you know, okay, so COVID's going to become endemic mm-hmm. and we've got no real plan for how to manage that. And, you know, it, it really, really affects our way of being with each other physically and just the way we connect. And we don't really know how that's going to pan mm-hmm. out. And then as well as the people that feel, you know, extra marginalized because of different health conditions. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of interesting, right? But these are interesting times in, you know, COVID's mm-hmm. in some way a foretaste of the various other forms of collapse that we are coming around the corner, whether we like yeah. it or not. And the one really looks at the environmental data, just like we know that we're dying, right? And yet it's like, it's so hard to really let that in, the truth that I'm dying mm-hmm. every day. And collectively, we have that same difficulty to really acknowledge how fragile our collective existence is in terms of resource use and air pollution and uh, you know, all the other things that I'm sure people are aware of here. The heartbreak in a way in COVID and seeing the dysfunction and the polarization and the politicization of things like mask wearing and vaccination. It's like what we really, really need to do, regardless of the crisis, what we really need to do is take care of each other. And it's heartbreaking to see that we don't seem to be collectively very good. We just don't seem to be at the stage where we're very well able yet to just take care of each other. Yeah, I mean, I think in the beginning of, which it seems a long time ago, uh, because it was, I mean, I did have a stirring of hope that this would do the precise thing that you're talking about, that we would have a very different sense of all being together. And to some extent, you know, perhaps that happened. And certainly it happened for different individuals, but it 
also evidenced, you know, so much cruelty and disparity and othering and so many things like that. Not to mention, you know, not everyone has the skills of being really alone. Like James knows he's one of like maybe like seven people I've been with in two years, you know, <laughs> in a room, you know, something like that. Because I came up here to Barry and I was doing a tremendous amount of teaching, which is another thing to talk about, sort of the online disembodied experience, you know, and people would come in with masks and record me. And this was before vaccine. And I really felt like my own practice and the years of practice had given me a sense of connection that could be vital and alive without a whole lot of physical presence. So I have lost some social skills, no doubt, which I'm sure James would attest to, but <laughs> no, um, no. I have felt very connected nonetheless. I think that, you know, Martin, you point out how difficult it is for people to simply take care of each other. But I have to say that when I get on the subway and I see every single person is wearing a mask where someone isn't, they're an outlier. I'm kind of moved by that because everyone has simply adapted to this rather uncomfortable truth. Nobody likes putting on a mask and wearing it all the time. And yet on the subway, whether people think they're supposed to or whether they should or not, everybody's wearing it. So there is some, I think, level of care in the community. And I, I ask this because you also write about the collective body and our need for community. So how do you think the pandemic has changed our relationship to community? I think it so much depends on where you are and probably it depends what you read as well. But I appreciate that point you just make, James. I found it very touching, actually, in the early days of going out into town or shopping or whatever, that sense of mask wearing as exactly that, as a, I mean, a, a real act, but also a kind of symbolic act of mutual caretaking. But there was moments where it really felt like that's what we were doing. We were taking care of each other. It's good to nourish oneself with that when it's there, because there's a lot more dystopic ways of when you see in the media, you know, what's happening around all the pushback and the disinformation, whether it's about masks or vaccines or all the movements that are encouraging us to polarize in some ways. I've lived all my life, all my adult life in community, basically, whether monasteries or ashrams or then in the retreat centers that I founded here in France. And, and I had COVID right at the beginning of the pandemic and it, it turned into the long form. So I was pretty out of it for about a year and a half. Certainly the first few months, I was two months, like absolutely in bed, in bed, in bed. My two adult children had come home at the beginning of the pandemic and my wife was here. And it was springtime. And I was looking out the window a lot. And it was that season where everything's turning green. You know, of course, my, my wife and my children were community in that spring. But also the greening trees were really part of that community. Mm. In that first lockdown, when there were no planes in the sky and the sounds of the world were different and wild animals were coming into town centers because there were no cars on the street, there was this window into a rediscovery of the magic and the intimacy of connection, not just with each other, but with the natural world and the resource of that. And I'm reminded of that statement of the Buddhas where he lists the resources for deepening one's practice listening to dharma and reflecting on dharma and meditating on dharma and teaching dharma and just hanging out under trees i'm not mm. sure that's quite the way he phrases it but basically you know the contact with the natural world it, it anticipated my next question which was about maintaining connection and you you just expressed that so beautifully sharon yeah i mean i had the same thought that it's all about connection and what a beautiful thought 
connecting to the nature of things, to trees, even if our ordinary quantity of human connection is is not happening. It's very beautiful. I'm going to come back to the book for a moment. And in it, you write about three instinctual drives, the drive to survive, sex drive, and social drive. And you say that rather than repress or transcend these drives, we might enter into them. Can you walk us through these three drives and what lies beneath them? After coming back from some years in Asia and then having children and all, it became clear to me that the monastic model that I'd inherited as a kind of practice ideal wasn't really going to (laughs) work in a life in relationship and with children and all the rest. And it struck me that the very key areas that monastics consciously step away from and, you know, beautifully and importantly and potently step away from that are the sort of the key areas of an engaged life. I step away from working in a conventional sense and away from sexual engagement and away from dealing with money. You look at the Theravadan tradition as a very beautiful and potent way of doing that. And why those three areas? Because it clears the decks in in a way. It simplifies things to really, to practice deeply. And yet, it also started to seem to me that actually going into, entering into those areas is also really potent, right? Which is the heart of the tantric approach, right? You really get to see yourself and your sense of identity. Incredible how we generate our sense of identity around our work or around how we are with money, around intimate relationships. And so that those things are really mirrors for us. And I started to teach a course called Work, Sex, Money, Dharma, which was really Mm -hmm. trying to kind of bring those back into the field. Because, hey, I love the monastic tradition, but the way I'm living and the way all my students are living, they're all, (laughs) they're working or trying to, they're dealing with money. They're either having sex or, or not, but, you know, they're, they're involved in the world of relationship in, in some way, even if they've chosen consciously to be outside of that in some way. And I was learning a lot myself in those areas. So the instinctual drives really show us, it seems to me we have the, these predominant, even though we're all beholden to all three, the social instinct or the social drive is the one where it's like the self trying to protect the self. Basically, it's like an inner loop. How, how can I be okay? How can I be safe? What do I need? And then the sexual instinct, it's not necessarily all about sex, actually, but it's more focused on the other. So for some people, an other becomes the predominant focus. Will you give me what I need? And I get my sense of predominantly of joy and of being resourced and of contact from an other. And then for other people, the social drive, it's more my relationship to the world at large and how that, how I am seen by the world at large, what I get from the world at large. And so in the book, I sort of apply basic Dharma principles and and practice principles to looking at those three areas and the different versions by which they get expressed, because actually I think everyone can recognize themselves in all three of those drives. Of course, they're just very fundamental human drives. But by attending to the one that predominates for us, the one that we most easily get pulled into, it seems to me there's a lot we can learn about ourselves there. And that's what that chapter's opening up. All right. I mean, just to go to sex, since we don't usually talk about it when we talk about meditation, I'd like to quote a passage. You write, at the heart of the sex drive is the longing for intimacy, uniting with and dissolving into something outside of ourselves. And that is the essence of meditative practice, to pour ourselves into life and let life pour into us. 
In this dimension, all of life is sex. All of life interpenetrates. Everything, using Thich Nhat Hanh's phrase, inter-is. Our intimacy is with sky and earth and all of existence. I thought that was a novel way to look at that in relationship to meditation. It's often seemed to me that there's something erotic isn't quite the right word because we've got very, just the associations that we might have when I say erotic, but that quality of eros, right, of interpenetration, the language we use around to make love, right, the language, one of intimacy, of losing oneself and another, that which we associate with being the best and the most beautiful and the deepest and the most nourishing in sexual love, a lot of those qualities are really present in meditation, right? The sense of intimacy with, dissolving into, of being filled by. Mm -hmm. And again, I think the natural world's an amazing resource for that. That sense of the quality of eros, being loved by the world as much as one is loving the world. And I think it's helpful to reclaim some of the language around sex, which often is unhelpfully pushed out of the way, where there's some understanding that, of course, sex is a powerful drive that one can get into difficulty with it, one can get obsessive around it. There's a lot of possibility for beauty and there, and there's a lot of possibility for harm and abuse there, etc. But it seems a shame to throw the baby out with the bathwater in a way. And given that you know, most of my, and I'm sure Sharon's, and you know, our whole Dharma scene, most of our students are living lay lives. Mm-hmm. What a shame to leave sex out of, <laughs> out of our teachings and our practice and the language and metaphor of, of all of that as well. Or for that matter, pleasure. At one point, you share a passage from a sutta where the Buddha speaks of a skilled contemplative as one who makes their own pleasure through the pleasure of embodied awareness. Uh, can you say something about the role of pleasure in awakening? Well, one, just to go right back to the beginning, that quality of relaxing, right? And what starts off to be an uncomfortable body, a restless body, an anxious body, a defended body. But as we learn to settle, as we learn that it's okay to be here. It's okay to be in this body. And as we go through the armature and the, the sort of the energetic knots and tensions and heat that all starts to kind of come up when we really get into meditation, it seems to me the basic experience of being human is pleasant. One's body is basically happy to be here. And that, of course, there can be all kinds of uh, difficulty, illness and injury and all other kind of things that get in the way of that. And uh, as I get older, and certainly through the year of having COVID, I had plenty of pretty strong and ongoing unpleasantness going on in bodily life. And yet still, it's like, Oh, it's sort of like one's soul is happy to be alive. We were made to be alive, at least for a you know, decade or few. <laughs> we are underneath our neuroses and all our pushing and pulling. Most deeply, we're glad to be here. And connecting to that, in fact, just the retreat I gave last week, the first day or two of the instructions, I talked about pleasure more than I might usually, just connecting to the pleasure of relaxation, the pleasure of the fact that you're able to breathe. And people really remarked on it during the retreat, how much of a resource it was. Whatever else is going on, you can actually, as you settle down to meditation before your legs start to hurt and and everything else, just to find some way you can connect with sense it's good to be here, some sense you're glad to be here, some way in which your belly is glad to relax or your, your breath is pleasurable to come in and out. 
really helpful resource, especially as people you know end up making meditation into this kind of chore of this thing they're supposed to do that's good for them, rather than, oh, this moment where I get to sit down with myself and, oh, <laughs> you know? Yeah, the Thai forest monk Tanisro Bhikkhu talks about finding pleasure in the breath as a skillful means to continue. Because without that, we might not continue. Right. So I have just one more question. You write about love as an embodied practice, and can you speak about four boundless qualities and how we can experience them in our body? So I talk about the Brahma Viharas, or the boundless qualities of a heart, as flavors of love. And it seems to me that they have certain universal embodied features. So metta, it has that sense of radiant warmth. It feels like there's a warmth in the heart and it, it spreads. And that's how the Buddha talks about it in the Metta Sutta, radiating kindness over the entire mm. world. That quality of basic benevolence, goodwill, friendliness, care, and helpful rather than people trying to think their way into what that state would be like. And one can both invoke these qualities and they increasingly become the more natural resting places of the heart. And then compassion is the flavor of love in response to that which is painful, confronted by dukkha, one's own or somebody else's or the dukkha of life. The felt sense of compassion is an ache in the heart. Compassion hurts, you know, which is sometimes confusing for people. But no, it should hurt. It needs to hurt when we're confronted by pain. You see that when you see somebody, you know, being harsh with a child, for example, in the street, and ah, and you feel the hurt of their harshness. Sometimes people speak about metta, karuna, loving kindness, and compassion almost interchangeably, and I think it's a really helpful discernment to make. Mm-hmm. And then mudita, joy, delight, the way I describe it is as champagne in the heart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it has that fizzy quality, fizzy, 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 and yet also not just fizzy champagne, but intoxicating. Joy is sort of celebratory. It's the way love expresses itself in the face of beauty. And so there's qualities, gratitude, wonder, delight, celebration. I find it really interesting that we use champagne for celebration. It seems to me a very good match <laughs> for mm-hmm. that quality of heart that is kind of pétillant, we say in French, you know, fizzy, fizzy, celebratory. And then upeka, or what's usually called equanimity, I speak about in the book as having that felt sense, the embodied quality is one of space, right? vastness, vastness. It's some, from the word equanimity, we sometimes get the sense of a kind of something flat, even. But actually, it's not that we flatten out, more that we open up. That the heart is big enough. There's the sense that there's room for it all. The ups and the downs, the this is and the that's, the details and the dramas. The way that if I want to love all of life, I need to make room for it all. Make room for it all to have its comings and goings. So I explore them in different ways in the book, but those are the four embodied felt qualities that go with the, the different heart spaces. It's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Martin. It's a lovely way to end, although I wish we could continue. There are so many more questions. Thank you again for joining us. For our listeners, Martin's book is Awake Where You Are, The Art of Embodied Awareness, available now. You can go to Amazon or your local bookstore. We like to close these episodes with a short meditation. So at this point, I'll turn this over to Sharon. Oh, I was eager to turn it over to Martin. So <laughs> We can do that too. It's up to you, Sharon. Martin, is, is that okay with you? Uh, yeah, I was, I was looking forward to hearing from you. <laughs> after doing a lot of the talking, as you like. Go ahead, Martin. 
All right. Well, why don't we, having spoken about the belly, let's start just with a big breath or two. Let your belly fill up and then really let it soften as you breathe out. And then letting breath find its own movement, rhythm, and just sensing down. Down into the lowest place that you can feel the gentle expansion of the in-breath and the natural relaxation of the out-breath. Simple, easeful. And whatever else is going on, whatever sensations are present, whatever the mind activity, and seeing if you can just keep orientating in a simple way, gentle way, to a kind of resting down into this breathing body. Letting body sit. Letting breath breathe. Letting presence hold the experience of this moment. Just like this. Thank you both. Uh, I really appreciated our conversation and the lively exchange. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you so much, Martin Elward and Sharon Salzberg. It's great to be with you both. You've been listening to Life As It Is with Martin Elward. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast, so write us at feedback at tricycle.org to let us know what you think. Life As It Is and Tricycle Talks are produced by As It Should Be and Sarah Fleming. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.